ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week I'm diving back into the topic of ESG and ESG ETFs. And I'm going to say here right at the top, I know some of you are a bit fatigued on this topic. And I get that. I know some people feel like ESG has been uh, force-fed to them. But the bottom line is, if you're an investor, if you're a financial advisor, uh, if you work at a fund company, I hate to break it to you, this topic of ESG investing is not going away. And I always try to take the approach of uh, whether you agree or disagree with a certain aspect of investing, you should always try to at least understand it. I would say especially so if you're an advisor who may have clients asking questions about this. I, I mean, I think every type of investor should always be learning and challenging themselves but certainly financial advisors who are entrusted with other people's hard-earned money. And so very simply, that's what we're going to continue to do on this podcast. We're going to continue having conversations and always try to learn and challenge our existing views. And I think most people already know generally where I stand on ESG investing, but I'm going to continue to challenge that. I'm not just going to assume my views are the correct ones. Now, regardless of uh, all of that and whether you are fatigued on the topic of ESG, I'm going to tell you right now, the two guests I have for you this week should be more than enough to keep you highly engaged and, and certainly intrigued because I'll be joined by none other than Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify, who, if you know Dave, it really doesn't take much at all to get him going on a good, meaty topic like this one. You're going to get some very well-thought-out takes from Dave. And then I'll also be joined by Matt Pirro, who is Global Head of ESG Product at Vanguard. Certainly a company needing no introduction. And so I'm looking forward to this. Two fantastic guests. And I also think we're going to come at this from a little bit of a different angle than maybe what you're used to hearing. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nodig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, did you uh, like my little pep talk there to get everyone fired up to dive I into a ESG? 
I, I did. I, I was waiting for you to use the word rant in describing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 look, uh, here's the way I'm going to set this up. So from a narrative perspective, I do feel like it's been a pretty tough year for ESG uh, between sure. the traditional energy sector taking off, which obviously ESG funds tend to have a lighter weighting in that space. So there has been at least a little underperformance. Uh, we saw ESG funds that had exposure to Russian companies uh, earlier in the year, which that wasn't a great look after Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, there are, I, I got a list here. Now, uh, stick with me. There are issuers who offer a full lineup of ESG ETFs, and then they also offer China ETFs, which that's come under some scrutiny. Uh, let's see here. The, uh, the SEC is looking into ESG fund naming and disclosures. That's garnered a lot of attention. And then more recently, and this is actually where I want to start with you. You can certainly comment on those other aspects, but th this is where I want to focus our attention to start. There's been quite a bit of what I would call political backlash. So we've seen several states. Yeah, yeah they've headed down this path of forcing state pensions and retirement plans to divest the companies they say are boycotting energy and pursuing other ESG type initiatives. There's now a, a new ETF issuer in Strive Asset Management with who I would say is a pretty charismatic founder who also happens to be pretty uh, media friendly and Vivek Ramaswamy. They're ruffling some feathers by saying they're actually trying to remove politics from investing. They believe uh, ESG mandates are politically charged, though I will say, you know, some people have said Strive is politically charged because Vivek has done spots with Tucker, Tucker Carlson and those sorts of things. So with, with all that, here's my question for you to start. And I know we always like to steer clear of uh, political discourse on this show, but politics does seem to be all wrapped up into ESG. So I want to ask oh, yeah. you, why, why is it? How did politics get all intertwined with ESG investing? Well, I, I think it, it, it's the other way around, right? So like ESG investing existed before I think it became as politicized as it's become. I think the reason it's become politicized is because, let's face it, the current political climate is one that is largely based on culture wars, not actual policy decisions. Whatever side you're on here, I think we could all agree that, that things that are broadly described as culture war uh, have become much more prominent in American political discourse. And ESG is nothing if not fodder for those conversations. Um, I think it's particularly useful as a political tool because it is so ill-defined, right? I mean, if this was something extraordinarily simple, like, I don't know, just talking about animal welfare, right? Then I think we would have a very different conversation. But because, frankly, you can't even get five people in a room to agree on what ESG means, uh, it makes it really ripe for being uh, a bit of a, you know, a ball that gets bounced back and forth across the tennis match of like, well, no, it's this, no, it's that, no, it's this, no, it's that. Um, I think that's unfortunate. Because I think there is some level of ground truth in here uh, about like what is going on on the planet and how corporations impact that and ways that we could respond positively as a society. I also think it's true that things get a little out of hand and everything gets painted with the ESG brush. So I think there's so much meat under this very big umbrella of ESG that it's almost inevitable that it gets used as a bit of a political punching bag. Do you think that that is is uh, problematic for, let's just say, ESG ETFs. We can say ESG funds as a whole, because um, I, I think one of the challenges is if advisors and investors do view these products as being politically driven, they might just avoid them. Because I'll, I'll tell you, as an advisor, you know, we're, we're all taught not to mix politics with our portfolios. So do, do you think ESG is sort of losing the narrative game here and that because it does seem to be wrapped up in politics or the other way around doesn't matter. But these 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 are intertwined. That's going to present a problem for ESG ETFs moving forward. I, I don't think it's a problem for ESG ETFs in the sense that if you're, you know, a, a BlackRock or a Vanguard or whoever putting out ESG products that all of a sudden you're going to have to close up shop or uh, shut all these funds down. I, I mean, look, the numbers are the numbers, right? We've absolutely seen the bloom come off the rose in terms of flows into these products. We had a really good last couple years. The first nine months of this year have not been great for ESG flows. So clearly investors are pushing the pause button on major new allocations 
if we're talking about ESG ETFs. I would point out there's trillions of dollars still getting allocated around the world based particularly on the UN uh, uh, sustainable investment uh, methodologies, which is much more about uh, net zero and climate change. So it's very specific. That hasn't slowed down at all. There's still tons of money there. You can read the announcements in the last month or two from Nordic pension funds, from uh, major European investors. They're still going all in. This is really a uniquely American retail phenomenon until it became a punching bag for Florida and Texas uh, that decided that they wanted to start passing laws about ESG investing or at least making regulations around ESG investing. And that's where I think we've crossed a bit of a Rubicon. When we actually have people talking about legislation and lawsuits around fiduciary responsibility, now it's a whole different ballgame. Now it's not about consumer preference. It's not about consumer choice. Now it's about the role of government in deciding what people should be investing in. That crosses a whole bunch of lines. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, here in the U.S., and let's take advisors, you know, what really sparks uh, a bigger movement into ESG funds? And I think this is actually a great spot to bring up a recent Vetify survey where uh, you you did survey advisors about how they're using ESG strategies. And let me just give the results of that, and then I'd love your uh, reaction. So nearly half of the respondents, 47%, said that ESG comprised less than 5% of their assets. 20% said ESG was only 5 to 10% of their assets. And 13% said they didn't invest in ESG strategies at all. And then obviously the other, what, what is that, 20%? They said ESG was more than 10% of their assets. So I'm going to uh, negatively summarize that for you by saying 80% of advisors, 80% have less than 10% of their assets in ESG strategies. And we should note, there's probably at least a little sample bias here as well, because the survey data came out of a a webcast on the merits and use cases of ESG investing. So give me your take on this. I mean, do you find those results uh, bullish or, or bearish for ESG investing? I Actually, I find those results utterly unsurprising, which is not a helpful answer in any way. And I understand that. Look, when I talk to advisors, I think I, I, if you had not told, if I had not seen these poll results, I would have said, yeah, about one in 10 advisors that I talk to is all in on ESG. That that feels like an accurate, you know, anecdotal data point, you know, anecdata. Um, you know, it, but the flip side of that is that means nine in 10 advisors that I'm talking to are pretty skeptical about ESG. They've either got a responsive position on it, meaning they have a solution for their clients when it comes up, but it's not something they lead with, or they're actually kind of counseling their clients, as you were saying at the beginning, to say, look, let's just keep the politics out of our portfolio. If you want to talk about a charitable giving plan, you want to talk about, you know, remainder trust, there's lots of things financial advisors can talk to their clients about that are really about values that aren't necessarily about buying an ESG fund. Um, I think that is a legitimate approach for an advisor to take as well. I also think buying an ESG fund is a legitimate approach. They're accomplishing different things for different purposes. Um, so no, I don't find that particularly surprising. I think the sample bias there makes a ton of sense, right? If you're showing up to a webinar to find out about the case for ESG investing and how to talk to your clients about it, it probably means that you're not either 100% all in, in which case you figured that out already, or you're completely against it, in which case, why would you waste your time trying to figure out the story of ESG, right? Right now, so I, I think that is a, an accurate representation of where the average advisor market is. There's a one in ten chance that you're super all in, and maybe you've built your whole practice around it. And I, there are some very successful advisor practices built around this, or you're just very skeptical about it and leaving it to the side. I think those that's an accurate representation of what I hear from advisors. Well, and I think to your point, another question from the survey asked, um, "How are you, or will you implement ESG investing into client portfolios?" And forty percent said to experiment by adding some allocation, but not fully replace. 27% Mm -hmm. said use in a risk management strategy. And there were some other responses, but my point is I think that shows there are clearly differences in how these are being used. It does depend on the advisors. I think some advisors may use ESG ETFs as part of the core of their portfolios. Others, maybe just the satellite holdings, right? Especially with something like uh, clean energy ETFs, thematic ETFs targeting uh, various you know, quote unquote, ESG causes. So I I agree. I think there is a lot of different 
use cases here and advisors are going to approach the world a little bit different. Let, let me ask you this. You mentioned Vanguard and BlackRock earlier. And as you heard at the top, I'm going to visit with Vanguard's global head of ESG, uh, Matt Pirro, here in a bit. I, I, I wonder what companies like that should be doing from an ESG perspective. And the way that I'll, I'll frame this for you is that I feel like they're in a bit of no-win situations. And I know a lot of people aren't going to have much sympathy for, for these firms, right, just given how big they are. But they do seem damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like if they don't pursue ESG initiatives, people are going to throw stones and say they don't care about the world and those sorts of things. On the other hand, these companies are some of the largest shareholders in things like energy companies, in really every company, right. right? Because index funds are an enormous part of their business. They have to hold these companies. And even if you think about on the active management side, they might have strategies where they just want to minimize tracking error. And so maybe they, uh, you know, sort of hold their nose and invest in some companies they don't really like from a sustainability perspective because they want to track closer to the benchmark. But my point is, it does seem like they're in a difficult spot. What, what, what do you think firms like BlackRock and Vanguard actually should be doing here? Well, so this is this is where we get the overlap of sort of two of my Vetify research pillars. One is this this very problem of how squishy ESG is to define, to market, to develop, to even figure out where it fits in a portfolio. The other is the ethics of indexing and common ownership, which you're you're talking about now voting rights. You're talking about how should BlackRock and Vanguard vote their Exxon shares that they hold on behalf of you know millions of investors around the country. Um, those are both important conversations, but they're somewhat different conversations. If I'm a BlackRock or a Vanguard, and I'm in the business of putting product out there to meet investor demands, I think it is completely reasonable to have both, say, your energy sector fund and a net zero fund and have those things be part of the same lineup. I mean, when you go into Walmart, right, you can go buy diet aids in one aisle and the giant bag of Doritos in the other aisle. And nobody ever says, well, you know, they're picking, they should pick a side on whether or not you should eat junk food, right? I think that in many cases, we're talking about large firms that are effectively supermarkets for investment ideas. Uh, and some of those ideas are going to be counter cyclical to each other. Nobody ever says that a company should only have a growth fund and not a value fund. Nobody, I haven't heard that argument against Vanguard. Uh, so, so I think it's a little bit weird to say, well, you know, if we're going to have ESG funds, that means everything in the firm has to be ESG, or vice versa. If you're going to have a non-ESG fund, well, then you shouldn't have any ESG funds. I, I think that's a, a bizarre argument to make for firms who are largely in the business of intermediating intellectual property. I mean, you think about it, very few of BlackRock funds come from BlackRock's IP or Vanguard's IP, meaning they're not the one saying, put this stock in this index. Most of these are licensed indexes from an MSCI or a State Street or a CRISP or, I mean, or a, an S&P or a CRISP or a FTSE, right? And that's the IP that's being embodied here. And these issuers are effectively just the supermarkets. I, I, it feels like a bizarre argument to me. But that's where I get back to the to my point earlier that I wonder if ESG has just lost the narrative here. Because I think your example is a great one, right? If you go into Walmart and you go grocery shopping there, you can buy some nice fresh produce, some some vegetables and, and fruit, or you can go over and load up on ice cream and candy and everything else, right? You have, yeah, I mean, you, you have that option. So I think it's a good point. And I just wonder, I, I, you know, I see it out on social media where people are throwing, say, BlackRock under the bus. I don't know if it's because they've been out there with some of Larry Fink's uh, you know, his letters every year and some of the other things they've done on, on the uh, ESG marketing side. It's just such an odd um, phenomenon, right? Because you're right. I mean, they are more of, of a supermarket provider here. They are offering choice to investors, but I feel like they get it from both sides. Yeah, they do. And and I think you're... you're assessment that sort of they're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't is a very accurate one. I think a big part of this problem is that we now are tying up the issue of voting into all of this. And if you just look at, for instance, how Texas has tried to uh, sort of regulate around this, it's frankly ridiculous. They put out these press releases that were all very crowy about how they were going to be anti-ESG and kick BlackRock to the curb and all that stuff. And it made for, you know, three or four days of really high hype hyperbole, uh, you know, headlines. And then you actually read the thing that they did. And they literally are just keeping people from buying BlackRock stock in these 
pension plans, which they basically didn't own any of anyway, except through big index vehicles. And conversely, then they said, well, we're not going to invest in any of these BlackRock funds because they're all pro ESG. You look at the specific funds that they then ended up excluding, and it's like, 15 target date funds. It, it's 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 an utterly irrelevant amount of money. So it's entirely performative. It's all theater at this point. Um, and that to me is the big the big damage that's being done here is taking people's retirement money, taking people's opinions about how they want to invest, taking their opinions about how they want to express capital into the universe, and then effectively creating this sort of disingenuous set of things where you say one thing and then you do another thing and you still try to get political points for it. Uh, I think they're playing political football with people's retirements, and I'm not a big fan of that. Okay, so let me ask you this. What do you make of somebody like Strive Asset Management and Vivek Ramaswamy? Uh, You know, they're pursuing what they call a post-ESG mandate. They want companies to focus on uh, quote unquote, pursuing the best products. They want to focus on profitability. And they're saying that ESG mandates run counter to that and that they're not in the best interest of, uh, of shareholders. And you look at Strive's first ETF, Drill, their uh, U.S. Energy ETF, that's been pretty successful out of the gate. They just launched an S&P 500 ETF. They have more ETFs on the way. Any thoughts on what somebody like Strive is doing to me. They're kind of like the uh, anti-engine number one, right? They are. That is exactly what they are, right? They are exactly the anti-engine number one. Particularly, you know, launching an S and P five hundred fund. Now it's literally pick your S and P fund based on how you want them to be voting on activist shareholder issues. That I'm fine with that. I think the idea that you're going to pick your S and P five hundred manager and include in that discussion how they're going to vote the shares. I'm a big fan. I've been writing about that for a decade. I'm a big fan of that. And if people want to vote with their pocketbooks and go to engine number one because they want Exxon to have, you know, activist ESG folks on the board, if they want to go to Strive because they want the most drill baby drill people to be on the board, I think that's a choice that investors can make. Where I draw issue, um, not just with Strive, but I think with some of the discourse around this, um, and it's not just Strive, it's what's happened in Florida, it's what happened in Texas, is frankly, people are not being particularly forthcoming. I don't want to accuse anybody of lying, but there's a lot of political maneuvering in the language that people use to describe their opposition here, right? So they make these claims about what ESG managers are doing or how they're voting, which actually bear no reality whatsoever. They're not actually what's going on. Um, And I also think that it's legitimate to be looking at the costs associated with some of this, right? So I I think there's a lot of bandwagoning going on here to try to catch some political wave, charge, frankly, a, a fairly large amount of money to run very simplistic strategies to pocket the difference. That is, that's the part I have more problem with. But the idea that people have choice and can vote with their dollars, I'm all in on that. Dave, to sort of move beyond the um, political headlines and, and some of the other controversies surrounding ESG, I want to mention this Vetify piece that you just published this morning. So you recently sat down with Andrew Howell, who is director of influence at the Environmental Defense Fund, and then Matt uh, Siegel with Microsoft. And I've got to tell you, I found this really interesting. And for listeners, again, this entire interview, and it's lengthy, but I'll tell you, well worth the read. It's posted out at uh, etftrends.com. But I'd love to have you give a little background on this and, and what you were attempting to flesh out, because I felt like this was actually getting to the heart of what ESG is supposed to be, not, again, the, 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 the lost narrative that I keep alluding to. Well, I'm glad you said it, not me, because um, that was sort of my intent was like, let's get down to brass tacks, right? This is about companies, right? When we talk about whether you're investing in Strive, you're investing in engine number one, at the end of the day, you're still putting money into a Microsoft, an Apple, an Exxon, whatever, right? That's where the capital flows. And the whole point of this is that either those asset managers now have an influence on what a Microsoft or an Apple or an Exxon does, or the, the allocation of capital itself acts as a form of influence because if more capital goes to the quote-unquote good companies, their cost of capital comes down, it becomes easier for them to do things, their businesses can be more successful, they're effectively being rewarded for being the quote-unquote good guys in the conversation, and vice versa. Um, And so I wanted to get to the sort of ground state reality of what it's like to be on the ground. Um, Matt Siegel at Microsoft is the one not only working inside Microsoft to do things like, you know, build out water treatment systems in Southeast Asia, 
Asia, which Microsoft has been doing, and that's great. Um, but also they're in the business really of working with other companies to help them build systems to do things like track carbon usage, um, to manage their supply chains, to understand where they have you know, uh, liabilities in terms of forced labor in Asia. And Microsoft has systems and processes in place to help companies do that work. And the Environmental Defense Fund is really sort of in the business of enabling that work, right? Getting into Walmart and helping them understand how to chase down their supply line issues, et cetera. Um, it, the, it was a very long discussion. We edited it way, way down. I mean, it was hours of conversation that we sort of tried to to get down to uh, you know something that's readable in twenty minutes. Um, but but the the thing I came away from that set of discussions was was that the real work here is being done at the face of the coal mine. It's it's not so much about uh, geez, Exxon should or should not exist. It's a question of, okay, Exxon's in the business of extracting oil. How do they do that in a way that minimizes the impact of that activity? And it could be something as simple as thinking through how they're transporting some, you know, the pipes to supply these things and reducing that carbon impact, right? So it's a very reality-based way of thinking about the world where, yeah, all these companies are still going to be in business doing what they're doing. How do they do it in a responsible way and in a way that allows them to keep doing it for 10, 20, 30 years without having to be shut down either by the government or by the environment itself? So I came away frankly, very inspired by the work that those folks are doing. But, you know, if you read that interview, they, even they are skeptical of some of what's going on in the ESG investment world in terms of the data that we use, in terms of how products are getting built. So there is a lot of nuance to this. I think anytime we paint this with a big, broad headline brush, we've probably done the wrong thing. So I encourage you as an advisor, if this is something that's coming up with your clients, Get under the hood, form your own opinions, really learn what's going on here, understand that nuance. That's going to make you look like a genius to your clients. 100%. I think that's extremely well said. And again, I'm going to come back to your piece because the, the biggest takeaway I had from that is that you were talking to people who are actually making decisions um, at companies that have an impact. These aren't the people that are picking stocks for ESG funds or, or putting together ESG data. These are people trying to to you know move things forward. You know, whether you agree with their approach or not, they're actually in the trenches doing the work. So I, that's what I loved about it. Dave, we're going to have to leave it there. Simply fantastic perspective as always this week. I know it won't be our last time discussing uh, ESG. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Nate. Anytime. That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. I'm now joined by Matt Pirro, Global Head of ESG Product at Vanguard, who of course is currently the second largest ETF issuer, 82 ETFs, over $1.7 trillion in assets here in the US. And they are the leader in terms of ETF inflows this year, by far. They've taken in some $150 billion, which is just remarkable to me, given the market environment. Now, one of the areas Vanguard has been focusing on is ESG. They launched a new ESG mutual fund earlier this year, the Vanguard Bailey Gifford Global Positive Impact Stock Fund. They announced they're launching another active ESG fund later this year, the uh, Vanguard Global Environmental Opportunities Stock Fund. 
That's on top of their existing ESG fund lineup, which does include three ETFs. And Matt is now joining me from uh, Malvern, Pennsylvania. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Great to be on, Nate. So, Matt, look, Vanguard uh, currently offers six ESG mutual funds and ETFs overall. I feel like clearly making an effort to further push into the ESG arena with, with some of the new funds, which we can certainly talk about. But I want to start with Vanguard's broader ESG philosophy. And the way I'm going to tee this up for you is that I think there is a growing camp of investors and industry observers who feel like some of the larger asset managers have moved into the ESG space primarily for marketing purposes, right? As a way to uh, capitalize on potential investor demand and, and not necessarily because they actually believe in it. So with that a, a negative backdrop I've set for you, let's start there. What's Vanguard's broad view of ESG and why get involved here? Yeah, it's it's an important starting point here. And, you know, I think there's a couple of strands to this as we think about it. You know, one, one aspect here is it, it does come down to, to, to our clients and, and who we serve, you know, the advisors and, and the clients that they serve. And, you know, one thing that is that is clear is there is um, there is increasing demand for low cost, high quality options in the ESG space. Now, for Vanguard, that's not enough to entertain, you know, launching product or engaging on this. You know, there also has to be, you know, for us, a way for us to do it in a way that allows investors to continue to meet their long term investment outcomes. So, you know, and. You know, we can talk a little bit about how we think about product development at Vanguard more broadly, but that demand side of it certainly is something we think about, and ultimately clients are expressing a desire for more choice to express their preferences, and we think we can do that, but we also think we can do it in a way wrapped with education and the appropriate thought leadership so that these these types of products can be put into a broadly diversified portfolio that still remains very clearly focused on the long-term investment outcomes of clients because ultimately, you know, that's what, you know, we view our role as, as really key is, is helping that to, to that outcome to be achieved over the long term. So it's a little bit of, a little bit of, you know, client, but also not, not doing so in a way without um, being able to meet those long-term investment outcomes. Let me ask you this just to maybe uh, help crystallize your point there. So I was visiting earlier with Vetify's Dave Nottig. And one of the things we were discussing is that I feel like firms such as Vanguard are in a pretty difficult spot on the topic of ESG, because if you aren't out there pushing the importance of ESG considerations, uh, that upsets one group, right? And then if you are pushing ESG, that might upset another. And so I'm curious, does it all come down to uh, offering choice for investors or how does Vanguard think about this? Because obviously you do have a very diverse group of investors overall. Yeah, we absolutely do, and and we do know that in this space, as you as your question alludes to, there's a lot of different views on it, and I think that choice and preference side of it is very much when it comes down to the the product itself. So, you know, when we talk about launching an ESG product, Vanguard's very clear: if we're going to put an ESG label on it or something in the name that tells you there's an ESG orientation to it, we're going to be very clear and purposeful with the design of that product, so you know. That is explicitly part of what the product is intending to deliver from a characteristics perspective. Now, within your question, there's a little bit of a broader point made around ESG in general, and this gets to the conversation that comes up around ESG integration and environmental or social or governance-related risks that companies are exposed to just in terms of the way in which they operate. And, of course, we think there are important factors to be considered but it's in the name of long-term shareholder value for those companies. So if a company is exposed to, you know, environmental risk, maybe because of climate change, as an example, you know, we expect our active managers to think about that as part of their fundamental research. Our investment stewardship team will engage with companies on the, that materiality of that risk just to make sure that there is a strategy and a plan in place to address those risks in the name of long-term shareholder value. You know, we don't dictate what those companies should be doing, that's not our role, but it is our role to ensure that there is proper risk and oversight of those risks, again, going back to the, the name of long-term shareholder value. So, you know, for us, you know, keep it focused on the client preference and, and in those instances where there is one, give them a way to express that very clearly and purposefully. 
but also make sure that ESG risks are properly attended to in the management of products more more broadly speaking. I love the way you framed everything there. Certainly, you know, education is critical in this space. And I love what you said around, you know, making sure investors know what they're getting. Of course, we have the SEC right now looking at fund naming and, and disclosures around ESG. And I think being very purposeful, purposeful and making sure investors, you know, know exactly, you know, what they're getting under the hood is extremely important here. I guess with, with that, uh, Backdrop, let's maybe look at the Vanguard ESG product offering. So on the ETF side, I currently show three products. There's the uh, Vanguard ESG U.S. Stock ETF, ticker ESGV. There's the ESG International Stock ETF, uh, ticker VSGX. And then the uh, ESG U.S. Corporate Bond ETF, ticker VCEB. Any uh, quick comments on your ESG ETF lineup overall? Yeah, those, those three ETFs that you just highlighted there, those, those are what's referred to as exclusionary uh, products. And I can touch on a bit more about what that means. And it, it ties back to, you know, there's two aspects to our investment approach from a product design perspective. We have two pillars to it, avoid and allocate. And I'll, I'll, touch, on, I'll touch on both. Avoid is really where these exclusionary products line up. And what that, what that means is these products are designed to avoid or reduce exposure to companies that are involved with very specific and transparent business activities. So whether that's controversial weapons, tobacco, you know, a number of different business activities that our index provider screens the holdings for and removes those securities from the index. It's then market capitalization weighted, and we have an exclusionary ETF in this instance across U.S. equities, non-U.S. equities, and U.S. corporate bonds, as you mentioned. So it's an exclusionary approach. It's an approach that, that we continue to believe in. We think for end investors, the transparency that this type of approach brings, knowing what they hold and what they don't hold and why, it really allows them to align it uh, with those preferences you know, because what we find through survey work we do, you know, client meetings we do with advisors and otherwise is there's just certain types of companies that, you know, certain clients don't want exposure to for, for a whole host of reasons. And these products are really intended to meet that in that particular need. And again, that's part of what we call our avoid part of our investing framework um, for these ETFs. And how do those compare to what you offer on the uh, mutual fund side? I mentioned you do offer several ESG-focused mutual funds, including the one that launched earlier this year. I- anything you would compare, contrast, or highlight here? Yeah, I mean, as we move over to the mutual fund side, we do offer one exclusionary-based mutual fund. It's our FTSE Social Index Fund. We've had that since the 1990s, in fact. So that's a long-standing fund that we've had in place. But really, as we look over to the mutual fund side, this is where we've been much more focused on developing actively managed ESG products. So if I go back to that ESG investing framework that we have, and on the product side of it, we think about avoid, as I just mentioned, on the exclusionary. The other pillar is allocate. And allocate is all about the allocation of capital proactively toward companies based on an assessment of the manager that we hire to run the funds with an explicit ESG orientation but importantly, also with an outperformance objective. So the way we've set our products up is for those investors who have a preference to invest with an ESG tilt, and I can talk a little bit more about the different, you know, the nuances between the different products that we have in market today and plan to bring, but there's a specific ESG element to each of the fund's design, and then we hire a talented manager at a reasonable fee that we also are aiming to outperform the market uh, through effectively stock selection by investing in those types of companies that are aligned to that ESG mandate. So that avoid and allocate framework we use to really frame all of the products that we bring to market. And on that fund side, it really is increasingly for us about bringing thoughtfully constructed, actively managed products. Okay, Matt. So th- this will open up a, a can of worms here because you mentioned the outperformance objective. And uh, really, I think whether we're talking active ESG funds or index-based ESG funds, I feel like this topic of performance always comes up, right? There's a lot of debate over whether investors are sacrificing something here by taking an ESG approach. Can you talk a little bit more about how uh, Vanguard views the world on this, on the performance side? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's, you know, to your your point, it's, it's, a critically important part of the dialogue here when it comes to investing in ESG products. And, you know, I'll start at, a, at the highest level for us from a philosoph- philosophical standpoint, and it is 
the fact that any ESG product, whether it's an, an, an index fund or an ETF that's implemented passively by tracking an index or an actively managed fund managed by an active manager, all of those products are a form of active management. And the reason Vanguard says that is because our investment philosophy, philosophy is deeply rooted in the belief that the market is the market for a reason. All of the market participants have determined the price of the securities that the market represents. So that, that's your starting point for Vanguard from a portfolio construction standpoint. And any of these products, the exclusionary products I mentioned, many other forms of index ETFs that you see out there in the market and active products, they are active to a degree. So then you get to the point, well, what's the performance expectation that follows? And I think that word expectation is absolutely critical here. So as an advisor, that when you're speaking with your clients, you know that one of the things that's really critical to get right is managing the expectations of your clients. And I think that's critical here when it comes to ESG. And we've done a lot of research on this topic. And what we see is effectively dispersion with no pattern of performance of ESG products that have been in the market. And what I mean by that is you see... ESG products that have outperformed. You see ESG products that have underperformed. Of course, that performance pattern can vary depending on the time period. But there's no consistent pattern for us to be able to say ESG will or won't outperform as a factor. Only thing we can say with certainty is that it will deviate from the market. And that's okay, but it's an important starting point to understand. So for Vanguard, as we think about the products we bring and how we engage with advisors on what these products' performance expectations are, Say with our exclusionary products, expect the performance to vary from the market over the you know over different periods of time, particularly in the short term. But there's no reason to believe over the long term, 10, 20, 30 years, that that performance should should vary meaningfully meaningfully from the market. But there will be that tracking error relative to the market over the shorter time periods of time. If you want outperformance to be an explicit part of your ESG portfolio. Well, our view is that you would want to do that with an active manager, which means, of course, you have to accept active manager risk. That manager is going to have to deliver on that outperformance. But because ESG is being done with security selection, we can build a product and hire a manager where outperformance is part of the objective. On the indexing side, we stop short of that. But over the long-term period, we see no reason to expect the performance to vary meaningfully from the market. I think all of that is extremely well said. And and from my perspective, it gets back to exactly what you said, which is managing expectations, that if you are going to be invested really in any type of product that's doing something different than the broader market, there's going to be the risk of underperformance and the possibility of outperformance. Uh, There's going to be variability in returns, and you have to understand that um, going in. Let me ask you this. I know one thing we know for sure is that uh, investment costs matter with any fund and any investment strategy. And I would say Vanguard, probably more than any other fund company, has really continued to drive home that point. I I mean, I look at your ESG ETFs, nine basis points on the U.S. stock ETF, 12 basis points on the other two, extremely low cost. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of fees here and maybe the overall fee philosophy, both with Vanguard's ESG products and then maybe what you see across the industry. I mean, you're absolutely right. Costs matter. And we also know cost is one of those, one of those uh, few things when it comes to investing in the market that you can control. So all, all other things being equal, you know, lower cost is better than, high, than higher cost. Um, so I think that's the absolute appropriate starting point um, there. And, you know, for us, you know, one thing I think Vanguard has, has earned with, with, with clients and from a reputational standpoint is consistently low cost, not, not selectively low cost. And we've brought that philosophy to our ESG products as well, whether they're the ETFs that you referenced or the actively managed funds. You know, we feel very good about the value that we bring at the, at the price point that we're able to offer those products. Um, you know, I think one of the things here with ESG that is a bit different than the broader market is ESG remains relatively new. And, and the reason that's important is, you know, your listeners will, will know that asset management scale matters. And one of the things that scale has allowed, uh, you know, Vanguard to do, and, and not just Vanguard, but other firms as well, is, you know, as you, as you benefit from, from, from that scale, you're able to continually lower costs. 
And we have a history of doing that. Now, there is a floor on how low costs can go because there are some fixed costs associated with, with running funds and, and the firms that offer them. But ESG is so much newer. It hasn't really built that same level of scale as, you know, quote-unquote non-ESG products. So what I would expect to see over time is if more clients adopt ESG because of those preferences that they have, well, you would expect to see growth in those products across the industry, which if fund companies are doing, you know, what, what they should, you know, a lot of that benefit of that scale should they get passed down to that passed down that to the clients to the form of lower fees. So, you know, we're at a different stage of maturity when it comes to ESG across the industry, which I think might be why you see and hear some of that discussion around price points within ESG compared to non-ESG. But I think there is some context that's important from an industry standpoint. But then when it comes down to Vanguard, you know, to your point and the way you framed up the question, you know, low cost matter, we're going to offer products at the lowest cost we can possibly offer them so that clients keep more of the return in their pocket to help them achieve their long-term investment outcomes. Okay, so let's assume that on average, there's no sacrificing of performance, right? You may have some variability of returns, but over the long-term, no sacrificing of performance. Um, Let's assume that ESG funds exist with reasonable costs out there, which which clearly they do with Vanguard. That still leaves what I see as one of the biggest challenges with ESG investing, which is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So I believe ESG considerations are highly personal and can be very difficult to put those into a box. But you you look at ESG funds that are currently offered, you know, those have to be packaged uh, to to be accessible to the masses. They, they, They can't be customized down to explicit personal preferences. So do you view that as a problem at all for ESG funds? I mean, there's no doubt that that is a challenge um, because it is so highly personal, which is why, you know, we take great care to try to understand the, the, the needs and preferences of as many of our clients as we can to inform the way we design something. But you're absolutely right. You're not going to be able to meet those specific personal needs and preferences of all clients with, with one single product. So I think this is a case where firms like Vanguard, we're just going to have to be very clear that we're going to pick our spots, we're going to choose to develop product that, that we believe in um, for the different reasons that we've kind of touched on throughout the conversation, and be comfortable knowing we're not going to be able to meet every single need in this particular space. Um, you know, I, I don't, it's, it's a bit different than, than other spaces, but, you know, one of the things with Vanguard, though we offer a pretty robust product lineup broadly, you know, we're, we're, we're typically not the firm that's looked at as the, 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 the firm that's going to be expected to have the most products in any given category. So I think that same philosophy, that's going to apply here, uh, you know, from an ESG standpoint, because your point is spot on. It, it's, it's a tough space because of the personalized nature of it. You know, as we look out over the longer term, you know, you start to talk about, well, how can technology enable this, you know, whether it's through, you know, services such as personalized indexing or, or other things, right? Is there a way for that to be a part of the broader ESG investment opportunity and ecosystem? And I think the answer to that question is yes. But of course, those types of developments take, you know, take time to, to, to really play out. We're seeing it begin in the industry here, but it's certainly very early days. And the fund and ETF structure, um, you know, continues to be a, a, a very, very efficient, cost-effective way for investors to access the market. So, um, I think this is an area that, that most product development teams uh, spend a lot of time wrestling with because it, it is your, your point spot on there. Yeah, and, and Matt, to that point, in just a couple minutes left here, uh, talk a little bit more about how Vanguard is approaching product development in the ESG space. So I mentioned at the top, you do currently offer 82 ETFs, but only three of those are ESG focused. So j- just to be clear, should we expect more products in this space or, or how are you approaching this? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ESG product uh, development approach is the same approach we take across the board. So, you know, I'll just start at the highest level. It, you know, we have a very rigorous and time-tested approach to product development where we have a set of four product design principles that we pressure test every single product through before we make a recommendation to our global investment committee and ultimately the board for, for launching. And the first thing we always start with is the investment case. So that's the investment principle. And that just touches on, you know, how do we see this playing out over the long term in terms of the investment merit of the product itself, and importantly, the role that this product can play in a broader portfolio. Because it's very important to never forget that a product is never 
a portfolio, not never, but typically not just the portfolio. You put it inside of a, of a, por- of a more broadly diversified portfolio. So what's that role? So you test that investment principle. We look at the client principle. This gets back to needs and preferences. How well do we understand those needs of, of our clients and how can we develop a product to meet those? The third principle we look at is a business principle. We've touched on this a little bit around the edges, but this is when we launch a product, we've got to make sure this can be successful. We want to see the scale so we can pass on those benefits of scale. It needs to have some degree of success in order for the clients to want to engage with it and have that be part of their solution to deliver on their investment outcomes. So we do look at the business side of it. And then lastly, we always have to do what we call a feasibility test here. And this is the operational, legal type of assessment that we do before we bring any sort of product to, to market. ESG goes through that same approach. So do we, should you expect more? Yeah, we, you should expect, expect more. I mean, you already mentioned one that is coming, the, the Actively Managed Global Environmental Opportunities Fund, right? That's been filed for. So that's an example of something that's already on the docket to come. Um, so you should expect more, but expect it to be measured. You know, again, going back to a comment I made earlier, you know, I don't think your, your listeners should expect Vanguard to be the, the product uh, provider that's going to have the, the largest, you know, ESG range in, in the market. Uh, we're going to be very, you know, thoughtful and prudent on the, on the products we bring, making sure they meet those investment standards that we hold, making sure they meet the client need. But, you know, I think the trend here is real. I think it's with us. I think it's with us to stay. And that means we'll have to keep up with it for, uh, you know, for our clients. Well, Matt, I really appreciate the candidness and and insight this week. As you know, ESG can be a bit of a touchy topic for some, but I think it's a very important one and certainly something that's not going away. So I appreciate hearing your perspective, and thank you for joining me this week. I appreciate you having me on, Nate. That was Matt Pirro, Global Head of ESG Product at Vanguard. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Thomas Cole, co-founder and CEO of Distillate Capital. He's going to talk about their very unique approach to value investing and the ETFs that they offer that reflect that approach. Until then, have a great week, everyone.